Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Word on the Hill podcast with the Lanky Guys. My name is Dr. Scott Powell, and we're doing something a little bit odd today. I'm on my own, and this is not a podcast I imagined we'd be recording, so you can see um, not only am I solo, but we're pretty low-tech today. Uh, we had to throw something together. Um, Father Peter's out of town right now, and so we are going to put on a rerun, but because of a glitch in the matrix, so to speak, we discovered that three years ago, there was not a 13th Sunday of, ordinar- of Ordinary Time. It just didn't exist. It was instead the solemnity of uh, Saints Peter and Paul. So because of a weird glitch in the liturgical calendar, we actually didn't have a rerun to put on for you guys. And so rather than leave you out in the cold without any podcast, um, we're doing a quick condensed version of it with just myself. Again, a little bit low tech. So thanks for your understanding on that and bearing with us. But we want to be faithful to you guys and uh, and give you some some stuff to chew on this week. So that being said, it is the 13th Sunday of Ordinary Time, and our readings this week are going to be coming from, first of all, the book of 2 Kings. The first reading comes from 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 8 through 11, and then jumping to chapter uh, verse 14 through 16a. And then our sponsorial psalm is coming from Psalm 89, verses 2 through 3, 16 through 17, and 18 through 19. Then our second reading, we're continuing on the book of Romans. We're in chapter 6, verses 3 through 4, and then jumping to verse 8 through 11. And then finally, our gospel, where we've been for the last couple of weeks in Matthew 10. We're at the tail end in verse 37 through 42. So here's what I want to say today. Uh, starting out with our first reading, um, you know, I was looking at this, trying to figure out exactly what the connection was between all these readings. And what's interesting about the first readings, it's this great story about a miracle that is performed by the, at the hands of Elisha. And Elisha, if you guys remember, is Elijah's disciple. So he was the one that came after the great prophet Elijah, usually known as one of the greatest of the prophets. Elisha came after him, was his disciple. And actually, interestingly enough, even though Elijah is remembered a little bit better, it's Elisha who goes on to actually do double of almost everything that Elijah did. So, you know, Elijah raises one person from the dead. Elisha raises two. Elijah, you know, multiplies loaves and uh, loaves of bread and Elisha does it twice as many. So there's all these doublings in his story. But this particular story about Elisha, you can read through it, and if you just go based on what's going to be given to us this Sunday, it's really kind of hard to find a good connection, especially with the gospel. But if you know what happens after this in that same story of Elisha, then all of a sudden it brings a lot of things to light. So I want to tell you a little bit of the story of what's happening here in 2 Kings. It's this very interesting story of Elisha and a Shunammite woman. So he's in this region called Shunam. And it comes right after Elisha has just done this amazing miracle where he has uh, multiplied all of these um, uh, jars of oil for this widow who has two sons and creditors. So you remember uh, Elisha, um, had a miracle with a widow and her son as well. And now this widow has two sons. So you see these doublings again. Anyway, he's just performed this. He's done this great thing. And it says that Elisha's walking around. He's going past Sh- Shunem. And there was this wealthy woman who's heard about what he's done. She sees him as a prophet, understands what he's up to. And she comes and she invites him to have some food. She's like, hey, I want you to have some food with us and not only have some food, but she says she, it, she perceives that this is a really holy man of God. There's something significant happening here. And so what does she do? Well, her and her husband, they actually set up a room for Elisha in the upper levels of their house so that whenever he's in that region prophesying and doing God's work, work, that he'll have a place to sleep and to eat and a place that's comfortable where he can go and, and rest, which is really beautiful. 
So um, there he is. Uh, and, and where are we here? So um, in verse four, it says, one day Elisha came to Shunem and there was this woman of influence who urged him to dine with her. And afterward, whenever he passed by, he used to stop there to dine. And so he, she says to her husband, I know that this Elisha is a holy man of God. Since he visits us often, let's arrange a little room on the roof and we'll furnish it with a bed and a chair and a table and a lamp so he can come and stay with us. And we jump a little bit, this interaction between Elisha and his servant, the guy who's working with him. And he says, well, they've been so generous with me. This is so wonderful. What can I do for them? What do they need? How can I repay their great generosity? And he finds out that they are barren. They haven't been able to have any children. Apparently they would like that. And they're getting on in years. It's kind of a very Abraham and Sarah, uh, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth kind of story. An older couple who really wants children who can't seem to bear any. So Elisha says, okay, God wants to work through me in this way. And so he promises this woman that by this time next year, she's going to have a son. And what we don't get, which follows after this reading, is the kind of sarcastic response that this woman gives. And you can tell she's kind of had a hard life and she struggled with this probably for a long time. And so she's like, don't mess with me. Like, you can't, you can't promise that. Don't say this thing that I've been struggling with. Don't mess with my heart. And you get this sense of uh, a really sensitive, a really, a really um, kind of beat up heart that this woman has. And she's like, I don't know if I can believe that. But lo and behold, the story goes on, and a year later, she actually does have a son. And this son grows up, and it's wonderful. And if you read on the story, one day the son is actually helping his father out in the fields, and he gets this terrible headache. He's like, oh, my head hurts. So they come home, they lie him down in Elisha's bed, actually upstairs, and the son dies. And the woman's like, you've got to be kidding me. I, I told him I didn't even want to do this in the first place. My heart was too sensitive to begin with, and now he's dead. Like, why would God do this to me? And she hears that Elisha's coming by again. And so she sends somebody. She's like, go and get him. I want, I want to talk to him. And so she finds Elisha, and she goes out, and she's like, you need to come back. And she's like, why did you mess with me? Why would God do this? Why would he give me this gift that I didn't even feel comfortable trusting him with and now he's taken it away and Elisha goes to the house and there's this great scene where he goes up to his room where the son is lying his dead body is there and he lays his own body on top of the son he lays himself down mouth to mouth and chest to chest and hand to hand foot to foot and his act of laying down his body on top of this dead child actually brings him back to life which is really beautiful and everyone rejoices and it's great but for me, it just raises this really hard question, which we see, we have experience of this so much in the spiritual life. Why does God sometimes give us great gifts just to take them away and then give it back again? It's this weird story of like, okay, why are you making her go through the ringer in this way? You gave her this son. She wasn't even comfortable asking. It was this prayer that was just too sensitive. But she receives this gift and then God takes the gift away but then he gives the son back. So why does she have to go through all this turmoil in the first place? And there's no clear answer as to why that is. But what we do get is an insight into the experience of what it means to live the life of faith and to actually trust God with our whole future. You know, this woman, she trusts in God that this Elijah is who he says he is. She recognizes the righteousness, the holiness of this guy. And in her present she decides to make something for him and give him a room and care for him. But what she has trouble trusting God with is her future. Oh, I don't know about this thing. I've held too tightly to that. I don't know if I can give him that part of my heart because it's too sensitive. And then, of course, her worst fears come true and it's taken away. 
and she has to act in trust again. And I love her response because it's very honest. And she has this real sense that, wait a second, Elijah, you need to do something about this. She doesn't seem to lose her faith. She doesn't seem to lose this. She's ticked off and rightly so. But I think the reason I love this story so much is that she recognizes that both Elisha and God can handle her anger. They can take it. They're able to absorb her real emotions and she can give them freely. So it's a really interesting story, but it's going to tie in with the rest of the reading. So real quick on the psalm, Psalm 89, our response uh, from verse 2, forever I will sing the goodness of the Lord. And that forever I will sing the goodness of the Lord, there's a um, kind of this assumed even when it's really hard. You know, Psalm 89, historically, scholars have, have talked about it being broken up into kind of three parts. The first part of Psalm 89 has to do with God's activity and the creation of the heavens and the earth and how all of these things in creation, the heavens confirm God's faithfulness and all of these things in creation speaks to how great God is. And then the second part of the psalm have to do, has to do with God's faithfulness, his covenant promise to the kingdom of David and to the people of Israel. But then the third part, there's kind of the, the darker side. And the third part um, arises, you know, you see the, the sense of these historical circumstances that are going to threaten the covenant. And this reminder that, yeah, God is always good. Even his creation speaks to that. Yeah, he's made these promises and we know he's going to be faithful. But there's also all of these things that are going to happen in history and in the human experience that's going to make it look like maybe God won't be faithful. Where we're going to have to kind of hold our breath a little bit and say, wow, are you going to show up? And it's this recognition that even though God is faithful, it's going to be hard to believe that and wrap our minds around that sometimes. But it's a psalm that also says we know the end of the story. We know how this is going to turn out because we know God is faithful and we know what he's done for his chosen ones and his holy ones and his creation. And even when things look grim and bleak, our God is a God who has the power to raise people from the dead, which is what this story from 2 Kings really shows. You know, there are some scholars... I was reminded in this for some reason of the story of Abraham and Isaac, you know, where Abraham is called by God to go up on the mountain and sacrifice his son, Isaac, who, you know, he was barren as well and he couldn't have children. And then God finally gives him this beloved son, Isaac. And then he asks him to go up and sacrifice him. And I don't know what's going on in Abraham's head when God tells him to do that. But the book of Hebrews actually suggests that Abraham believes that whatever happens in that moment, God has the power to raise people from the dead. And that Abraham's act of trust is an act of giving God his future. Saying, I know you're going to make this right. I have no idea how. I don't know what that looks like. But I trust you with everything. Because I know you have the power to bring people back from the dead. Because that's who you are. That's what you have done with the people of Israel. That's the whole story of salvation history. Of people who keep kind of dying in their sin. And God keeps raising back up. Which as a segue, is what the book of Romans is all about in chapter 6, this kind of central piece of Paul's theology. And it's where Paul is reminding his listeners of what their baptism does. You know, it's in this section of the, of the book of Romans that Paul's kind of teasing out this idea that we're all sinners. We all fall. The world's a pretty broken place. We all experience that. But we shouldn't give in to our sin. We shouldn't give in to the darkness and the evil that seems like it's reigning in the world because, you know, it's funny. Paul basically says in the book of Romans here in this middle part, you shouldn't sin. But he doesn't say something like, well, you shouldn't sin because you're going to get punished or you might go to hell or it's really bad. I mean, all of those things might be true. But what Paul says is you should not sin because it's lying about your true identity. It's not who you are. You're deceiving yourself. 
And he says here, are you unaware that we who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Baptism, you know, the primary imagery, and I know we've said this on the podcast before, the primary imagery for the church of baptism is not merely of cleansing, of taking a bath from our sins, that's true, but the primary imagery is drowning, We die to ourselves so that we can be raised back up. And what Christ really does is imaged by what Elisha does for this little kid back in the first reading. He lays himself down on the body of this boy so as to raise him back up to life. Just like Jesus lays himself down for us so to raise us back to life. And when we are baptized, we enter into that laying down of our lives. We go into death so that... God can raise us back up. And in a very strange, mysterious way, I think that's what God is trying to show us and show that family in the first reading, that sometimes something needs to die to be brought back to life to show how glorious God is. You know, there's that great hymn. I don't know if it's great. I've never really liked it that much, but I love the message of it, that unless a grain of wheat, it's actually from the Bible. It's not him, a hymn. It is a hymn, but it's also from the Bible. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains but a grain of wheat. But if it falls to the ground and die, it can become bread. It can become something new. It can become life for the world. Jesus is going to need to die so that he can become the bread of life for us, which is where the gospel is pointing all of these things. And here, um, you know, I mentioned, I think, last week in chapter 10 of the Gospel of Matthew, what chapter 10 of Matthew is doing is showing Jesus' establishment of his authority. Um, Matthew, remember, he's a tax collector, and so Matthew's gospel is very compartmentalized, but in, in a good way. He's an accountant, so things are very well organized, and every, there's a place for everything and everything in its place, right? So in chapters 8 and 9, you have all the miracle stories of Jesus. Jesus showing very tangibly what he can do. He's like Elisha and Elijah. He's doing mighty works to show forth the glory of God. But then in chapter 10, he speaks to his disciples about the authority that he has. I can do all these miracles, all those mighty deeds. That works. That makes sense because of who I am. God has given me the authority. I am the king is what he's leading toward. And then he gives the apostles that same authority to go out and do what he did, which they do. And so here at the tail end of chapter 10 is Jesus has established his authority, is showing this is who I am. And now he's calling on the apostles saying, do you guys have the guts to follow after me? This is who I am. There's mighty deeds. There's miracles. This is great. It's really cool. But it's not going to be all fun and games and rainbows and daisies. It's actually going to get very hard. And Jesus talks about the cross that they're going to have to carry if they actually have the guts to follow him. This one who has real authority. Just like this woman who recognized the real prophetic authority of Elisha, if she was really going to follow that prophet, listen, hear what he had to say, it was actually going to bring great suffering. She could have just wiped her hands and say, I really want nothing to do with this guy. He's kind of dangerous. I'm not going to set a room up in my house. I mean, this guy is kind of free. He's doing all these amazing things. He speaks to kings. He speaks, he calls people out. He brings truth, but it's dangerous. I don't know if I want to set up a room in my house for a guy like that, because that could bring some danger on me as well. But she has the guts to do it. She says, no, I want that kind of authority. The one who God has chosen to show forth his mighty works and his glory, I want him staying in my house. But when you bring God's glory into your house, suffering is going to come along with it because the world won't always want to hear that. 
And so that's really what Jesus is saying to his disciples here. It says, Jesus says to his apostles, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And in a very strange kind of paradoxical way in the first reading, that woman, that Shunammite woman is being, say, is being asked by God, do you love me more than your son? Do you love me more than this child that I have given you? Are you willing to trust me? And at the end of the day, even through her anger and her frustration, which is well-founded, she's right, she's, it's, it's perfectly justified for her to be angry. She says, I want to understand. I want to get this. God, I trust you, and I trust that this servant of yours, this Elisha, is your servant, and I trust that he can bring some good out of this. I really think she does. She understands um, what God is up to. She can't see the end of the story. She doesn't know how this is going to turn out, but she knows that God is in it, and you know that she knows that God is in it because she's a little bit angry with God, and to be angry with God acknowledges that God is in, con in control. To be angry with God in the way that she is a holy anger acknowledges that God is in control and I am not, so God, you need to set things right. And that's what I see this woman doing. And Jesus is saying to us, are you willing also to entrust yourself to me? Are you willing to trust your future? Are you willing to trust me with the gifts that I've given you, your job, your career, your family, your children, your spouse, your parents, whatever it is? Are you willing to love me more than those things? Knowing that to love me more than those things will actually allow you to have those things back tenfold in a way that you never dreamt of. Because you trusted them to me, you acknowledged that they're mine. You know, as a parent, and I know there's so many parents listening, parenthood is hard, you guys. And it's really hard. And you end into these seasons of parenthood where you just cannot see the other side. And I've got some kids who struggle with some, some real needs and some special needs and things that our family struggles with that are unique challenges and crosses that God gave us. And there's a lot of tears in that and a lot of pain and a lot of anguish. And sometimes the only thing that comforts me as a parent is reminding myself that these children are not really my children. They're God's children. And he has allowed me some responsibility. He's given them into my care, but ultimately at the end of the day, they're his and so in a certain sense, I can turn to God in my anguish and my tears when we go through real struggles and not knowing the way out, and not knowing how to give my kids the tools that I know that they need, but not knowing where those are going to come from to say, God, these are your children. You're going to have to make this work. You're going to have to figure this out. This is your son. These are your daughters. You've given them to my care and I thank you for that, but you're going to have to give me the grace. And in that sense, we, we resonate with what Jesus says at the end of this reading, Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And whoever receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives a cup of cold water to one of these little ones to drink because the little one is a disciple, amen, I say to you, he will surely not lose his reward. Sometimes given that little cup of water to the disciple, Taking that step of faith, saying, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to support your people. I'm going to do what I can with the people that you have put into my lives, into my life. I'm going to care for them in the way that you've asked me to care for them. I'm going to be the kind of parent you want me to be, knowing that these are your children. I'm going to serve the priest at my parish. I'm going to serve my bishop. 
I'm going to serve the people in my congregation. I'm going to serve that person in the pew next to me with the terrible breath that just gets on my nerves or my neighbor because I know that you are working through them. But to do that and to put that kind of faith and that trust and to walk in that way is going to bring trial. It's going to bring a hardship. But Jesus is saying, do you love me more than that hardship? Do you love me more than these little ones that I've given you to care for? Are you willing to put yourself out knowing, number one, that there's going to be hardships, but number two, like the psalm says, knowing that God will always, always, always be faithful and he will never let us down. And as the psalmist says, the promises of the Lord, I will sing forever because throughout all generations, my mouth will proclaim your faithfulness because God's faithfulness at the end of the day is the one and only thing that we can really put our trust in. So you guys, thank you for bearing with me on a low-tech, very lonely podcast. <laughs> we will be back next week with both Lanky guys um, for another wonderful episode. You guys are the best. Thank you so much for listening. Send us your emails, like us on Facebook, do all those cool things that we always ask you guys to do, and we will be back next time. God bless you all. Bye-bye. The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.lankyguys.org. See you next week.